Welcome everybody to Between the Lines podcast from Jewish Quest. My name is Simon Eder and each week I'm joined by an exciting, dynamic scholar or rabbi to explore that week's parsha. And this week we are extremely honoured to have with us Rabbi Jonathan Wittenberg, who is Senior Rabbi of Masorti Judaism in the UK, a leading writer and thinker on Judaism, a regular broadcaster and rabbi of the New North London Synagogue in London with 2,000 members. And he is also a member of the Elijah Interfaith Institute Board of World Religious Leaders. Rabbi Jonathan, a huge welcome to you. you. And I know we're here to explore Vayikra, and we are also recording this about a week in advance of, of when it goes out. And we have all seen the most terrible scenes and heard the most horrendous stories of what is happening in Ukraine. And I just really wondered, I think it's only appropriate to start here, but just for your thoughts at this very difficult time. Well, indeed. And I think like so many people, I feel helpless when wishes one could do more than send money and try and keep in touch with the people one knows in and around the Ukraine. It is a terrible and disturbing and frightening time. It's also a time of remarkable courage and the example of the president, the army and the people of the Ukraine in their struggle for freedom and their fight for freedom is inspiring to us all. I listened today to Yuval, Yuval, Noah Yuval Harari talking about how, in, a, in this sense, P Putin has lost because those supporting freedom and liberty have risen to his challenge with an example that inspires the world. So I think that must also not be lost. I'm aware that as well as Parshat Vayikra, this Shabbat, the Shabbat we're talking about is also the Shabbat of memory. And this is a memory of historical events. Of, of historical trauma, particularly the conflict with Amalek, the conflict with evil. And I, I, I'm reflecting very much on the Russian bombing of Babi Yar and this kind of reopening of the graves of the massacre that happened there, which brings back to mind the persecution of our people, now the persecution of Ukraine and the... Uh, huge, violent force brought against it. But it also brings back into the open what it means to kill, what it means to destroy a human life. It re-exposes that before humanity in a way which needs to reach our hearts, minds, conscience and actions. I, I want, thank you, Rabbi Jonathan. I, I wonder if you might also reflect on the broader themes of Vayikra, on holiness and sacrifice, and their resonance for us at this time? Well, yes, particularly sacrifice, of course. I'm sure that was in your mind when you, when you asked that question. And 
you asked me earlier on to focus, as I, as I love to do when I study the Sidra, on Hass interpretations. Uh, they see the sacred within and beyond the words. They often read in a, in a creative way as if the, ta- the text were somehow had a plasticity to it. And beyond the semantics and grammar of the language is the, the divine intention concealed within the words. So there's a very creative reading there. And I, I'm very interested in how they read, particularly the opening part of, of Vayikrov. I want to say something about the latter part of it as well. Of course, this is all in the context of the temple, the second temple having been destroyed by the Romans in 70 CE and never rebuilt so that the sacrificial system is no longer functioning, nor do I, and I think many others, pray for its restoration. But it's left a profound structural imprint on Jewish worship. The Talmud in Tractate Brachot records how shacharit corresponds to the, the ola, the, the burnt offering in the morning, mincha to the afternoon offering. And uh, as a vegetarian, I have to concede that the night offering the, the Marif corresponds to the bits and fats offered on the burnt up on the altar at night. So the sacrificial system has left a profound mark on the whole structure of the Jewish day. But, but what the Hasidic teachers foc- focus on in, in different ways on that opening verse is, is the real meaning of korban, which is related to the word karov, which is near. So a korban is a means, a rite of bringing a person near to God. Uh, I wouldn't want to judge what animal sacrifice may have meant in the days of the temple because we're not living in that culture anthropologically. We're miles away. And it's very possible that there was a profound relationship between a farmer and the animal that they brought to offer. And they would put their hands on its head, confess their sins. And it was um, a vicarious offering, which may have been deeply, deeply meaningful in ways we can't imagine. In fact, um, the, the Hasidic author I want to come back to, Rabbi Kalonimus Kalman Shapira, subsequently known as the rabbi of the Warsaw Ghetto, says every sacrifice was, quote, tachat beno, in place of his son. Those, for, that word, those words come from the, the narrative of the Akedah in Breshit, where Jacob offers that, Jacob Abraham, sorry, offers that ram in place of Isaac, tachat beno. So every offering is a vicarious offering of self. So this takes the Hasidic teachers into what, what does it mean? What does it mean to offer? And they take this opening verse, Adam ki akriv mikem korban ladonai. Literally, a person who brings, who brings near mikem from yourself. Now, the, the plain narrative meaning of the text means the animal you bring will be yours. It'll, it, it'll belong to you. But in these mystical readings, it is you bring near of your own personal self, heart and soul. It's about dedication and devotion of one's whole personhood, korban ladunai, bringing near to God. And it's this sense of dedication to what is good and right and sacred and holy that permeates the Hasidic interpretation. I think it's fair to say of the sacrifice of the sacrificial system there's a, a sense there of this balance between or what what the hasidim would call itaruta dilatata and itaruta dileela 
the awakening from below and the awakening from above. The awakening from below is the readiness to bring oneself near. But then, as we all know from giving presence, sometimes it goes down well and sometimes we haven't quite given the right thing or at the right time. So there's also the question of God's acceptance of it. And one beautiful interpretation, I'm looking for exactly who said it, but I'm, yes, it's Rabbi Moshe Eliakim Bria of Koshnitz, one of the Koshnitz distance. He says, Korban Ladonai, the bringing near of ourselves is also belongs to God, that we offer and then God will draw us near. So we can begin the process, but then we will be helped on the, on the route forward. This relates perhaps to the Talmudic saying, Haba letaher mesayinoto, a person who comes to purify themselves, receive help from heaven. I said earlier that I wanted to go back to the Rebbe of the Warsaw Ghetto, Rebbe Kalonimus Kaman Shapira. The more I read his writing, the more I think that he is among the greatest spiritual figures, certainly in Judaism, but perhaps all told in the 20th century. Before that, he comes from, I think, the dynasty of, I hope I haven't got this right, everyone's got this wrong. He, I think he comes from the dynasty of Peshiska, but I might have got that wrong. He, he, marries, he, marries, in, he marries a daughter of the Rebbe's of Koshnitz, and he's taught by the Rebbe of Koshnitz, and he's an Ilui. He then establishes a yeshiva in, in the suburb of Warsaw, in Piazetz. He's known for his work on education. He's deeply interested in how the consciousness can receive the awareness of the divine when we inevitably, through our minds, turn everything into sort of our own limitation in language. So he's interested in the nature of spiritual consciousness. His son is killed in the German bombardment of Warsaw, terribly wounded, and then dies some days later, as does his daughter-in-law. He's lost his wife earlier, just a short time before the war. He's left basically all but on his own in the ghetto. He goes on writing, teaching, burying his sermons all the way until January 1943. He's then taken to the camp of Troniki, where he's murdered in November 43. And his writings are found after the war and published as Eish Kodesh, the Sacred Fire. And he's got this remarkable pieces related to sacrifice, but also related to another aspect of the contemporary situation is when we feel helpless, what can we do for each other? And he writes, this is from 1940, about you know, how we can share, how we can give, but also how our brokenheartedness when we share it, can strengthen each other. And that's very moving because you know, the, the prophetic understanding of sacrifice is that God desires the heart, and especially the broken heart is what God most values and cares about. So he writes about the sharing of the broken heart. And then he writes something which is both extraordinary and maybe to some repellent theologically. He notes that and we're now in 42. We're in January 42. And one doesn't know how deep his awareness is of the full horror of what's happening in Poland but we are at the time of you know, Treblinka and Sobibor and Belzec are, are functioning. 
And he notes that the word for the rake to remove the ashes from the altar is magrefa. Magrefa. Ligrof means to rake away. But the magrefa, according to the Talmud, is also a remarkable musical instrument. It sounds like it's like a flute with 10 holes. But the Talmud says each of those holes can produce 100 melodies. So it can produce 1,000 melodies so powerful that they're heard as far away as Jericho. And he then asks, what's the relationship between removing ash from the altar and music that can be heard even by God? And you can see the audacity of this comment. And he talks about people who've sacrificed themselves, whether they've chosen it or not. And of course, who's chosen it in the Warsaw Ghetto? And who wouldn't rather live than die among those fighting now in the front line for freedom in Europe? And he says, you know, he, he, uh, if somebody from the outside were to say such a thing, who was not in the middle of it with their own life at stake, he would say it's obscene to say such a theological, you know, to create such a theological construction. But he's trying to, cons to encourage the people around them to say that our sacrifice has meaning that it has spiritual meaning, that our lives are not being given away in vain. And he says the ash is also the way that music is made before God, that the soul continues and its music ascends on high and it awakes the divine mercy. And that divine mercy will arouse God to change the nature of history and our fortune. It's the most remarkable, I, I, I see that as just full of courage and the desire to encourage those around him. And of course, he's talking about sacrifice. Hugely, hugely powerful and, and, and moving. And I think I'm also in a little like shock as well. I, I want, and maybe this is, maybe this is a, a theme throughout Vayikra and maybe beyond, but of the, of how how one achieves balance through through holiness and those those powerful um words it, it feels like maybe at times like there's not there's not time for there's not time for balance but throwing one one's whole self is necessary i wonder how how we might respond to that oh goodness i my first kind of response goes to actually a verse that's not in our, our parsha, but I think back in, I think it's back in Shmot, in Exodus, in Parshat Mishpatim, kodesh tihiyuli. You should be holy people. It, it, the word is not arm, it's, it's a holy individual people, holy people to me, says God. And there's a comment on that by the Kotzka Rebbe, which is, Kodesh, holy, but anashim, but human. And I've, I, I've, I've been sort of caught really and, and gripped by that sense of the balance between us being human beings. We have feet of clay. We have human needs. We live on this earth and yet devoted to God. And that, that sort of balance between the mundane, the ordinary, the call for mitzvot that are really ben adam lachavero, between person and person in daily life to be a decent neighbor and a good friend, to care for those who really need us, 
and at the same time to live a dedicated life, perhaps precisely through those actions, actually, that being human is also the route to being devoted. And I often think that we serve God by serving God's presence in all life, particularly human life, but in all life. I was going to go on to a slightly different theme, which also fa fascinates me. A lot of the first portion, the, person, the first portion and part of the second portion of Ayikra are devoted to the different kinds of sacrifice. So the, the burnt offering, the mincha offering, the afternoon offering, the, the shlamim, the peace offering, the todah, the thanksgiving. But I think it's fair to say a lot of space is devoted to the sin offering. And most of the cat, it talks about when, when the a priest should sin or the high priest, when an ordinary individual should sin, when the community should sin. And usually the, 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 the section will begins im, if so-and-so sins. But with regard to the nasi, the head of the establishment, the president, the prime minister, whoever, it says asher, when. Now, asher also can mean the same as im, if. And a couple of comments on that. There's a, a, a passage, I think it's attributed to Rabbi Yohanan ben Zakai, who looks at the word asher, and then the yud in nasi creates the word ashrei. And he says, happy the generation whose leader can recognize when they make a mistake and are wrong and bring an offering. And that's opposite in so many ways. You know, you think of a figure like Putin, who seems incapable of conscience. And you think, if only such a person, you know, I just signed a letter to the head of the, of the Russian church, because there's a sense that perhaps he is a person who can speak to Putin, who will be recognized as having some kind of authority. I don't know. But I think closer to home and how we live in a culture in which it's extremely difficult for leaders to apologize. There are two reasons for this. Perhaps many leaders find it hard to apologize. But also we're in, a, we're in a very cruelly unforgiving culture. We don't forget the things people tweeted 15 years ago. We dredge them up and hold them up there, you know, in social media against them. We, we, we don't really reckon that they may have done teshuva. They may have changed their mind. So the cost of making mistakes is the total loss of credibility sometimes. And it results in the fact that people refuse to acknowledge that they've been wrong. And I think that whoever one is, you know, we're, we're all leaders in certain sense, certainly a rabbi is in a community, but in, in our families, we're, a, you know, we're a parent. We, we carry different kinds of authority. It's very, very important that people who have authority are also able, able to say, I'm sorry, I got that wrong. And there's something very moving about that passage in the Torah. It's one of the things in this, in this Sidra that I pick out. And as a vegetarian with vegan leanings, I prefer to pick those things out than the kid, than the fats, the kidneys and the sprinkling of the blood. If you will forgive me for that. Absolutely forgiven. Maybe just a few final reflections coming back to, to where you began on uh, Zahor rem remembrance and that, that seeming paradox to remember to remember and what what it is at this time that we need to ensure that we that we carry with us and we and and we and we remember it's very interesting that one of the headlines quoted 
I think I saw it in the forward, but I may be mistaken, from President Zelensky, who's proved the most remarkable, courageous figure is Jews, don't be silent now. And that's almost a quotation from the Megillah, where Mordechai comes to Esther and Esther says, look, I can't intervene with Hashem. I've not been called to, I've not been called to the king. Uh, and he says, Im if you are silent now. And just chilled by that echo. So one of the things we have to remember is as Jews, we, we ask, where was the world? Why did people not speak up? Why was the solidarity not evident? And I think speaking up, speaking out, being evident. Now, it's very hard to know what kind of, you know, I, I wouldn't dare to talk about what military intervention should be made, though there's a really clear, you know, it feels a very, very strong case for a no-fly zone. And certainly, certainly for safe, for safe zones for, 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 for people in the Ukraine, certainly. And uh, many of my, you know, many people I know are saying, you know, one needs to support the Ukrainian military because they're the front line for Europe. And that, that, that seems to be the case. But most certainly for the safety and the, the integrity of a sovereign country, the, the importance of democracy and freedom, the abhorrence that we have of tyrants, the disgust we feel at the use of cluster bombs and other such weapons, which are really aimed to kill civilians. That's their function, to create a vacuum that creates a fireball that, that, that kills and not to be silent and not to watch hundreds of thousands of refugees cross into Europe without saying, what can I do? What can each of us contribute? At the moment, it appears the most useful thing is money. But at some point, more will be called from us. So I think we need to remember that the Torah says, don't simply stand by the blood of your neighbor. We must not. We must not be silent now. Rabbi Jonathan, thank you. I'm also reminded, actually, of President Zelensky on becoming president. I know he wrote to his lawmakers and saying, and I'm reading from a, from a, a tweet, I think, that he gave. This is back in 2019. I do not want my picture in your offices. The president is not an icon, an idol or a portrait. Hang your kids' photos instead and look at them each time you're making a decision. Please send me that. That's extraordinary. That's really, no, really we'll, important we'll do. and, and uh, very moving. He, Thank he you. certainly is seemingly wearing his, his Judaism wherever he goes. Rabbi Jonathan, thank you so much for yes. being with us yes. today and for your um, wonderful words and also bringing the powerful insight of Rabbi Kalman Shapira. We do very much look forward to welcoming you um, back again, hopefully in better times. Thank you. Please do remember to subscribe on Apple or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. We do look forward to welcoming you back again next week when we are joined by the chief rabbi of the United Arab Emirates, who will be exploring uh, Tzav with us on that occasion.